Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Freedom of Species, where a show that brings animal ad- animal advocacy to the airwaves of 3CR Community Radio. And thanks to Sally, who uh, hosted the last show, Out of the Pan. Make sure you check out Out of the Pan at 12 till 1 every Sunday for all things pansexual. And today we are joined by someone who is now a regular guest on the show. Welcome back to the show, uh, sociologist Corey Wren. Yay! Thanks for having me. I feel loved and popular. <laughs> Good to have you back. And yeah, uh, this is a topic which, uh, yeah, we're basically going to look at, uh, I guess, moving beyond individual change or kind of looking beyond the individual when we when we talk about, uh, I guess, looking at the the blame behind animal exploitation, looking beyond the individual. Um, And yeah, Corey has written an article called How to Help When It Hurts, Think Systemic in the Animal Studies Journal. And that article is all about what do we feed uh, carnivorous animals who are rescued, who who have to eat meat. Uh, And also another reason, and I I guess this topic of, um, yeah, sort of looking more broader at animal exploitation is something that has been an ongoing discussion on the show. And also I put a call out a while ago on um, social media for what listeners would like to hear on the show and someone put out the uh, question what I'd like to hear about the solution for people with meat-eating companion animals. Um, Not all animals can be vegan, so what's the answer? So this isn't about companion animals specifically. It's more about um, animals in sanctuaries, but I think it sort of touches on that question. And we have spoken about vegan dogs and cats on the show before, but I guess what we're talking about here is more animals who can't, can't be vegan. Um, And also, I guess I'll probably be adding a bit in myself as well because I recently gave a talk uh, at the vegan sociology conference that we covered with Corey a while back on the show um, called Who is to Blame for Harm to Animals? And, and I, I think there's a lot of crossover with what I was speaking about there and what, um, what Corey's article touches on. But um, having said all that, to start things off, um, I know Corey's been a little bit delayed with a new uh, puppy that you've adopted. So, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about that story to start things off and I guess the importance of adopting companion animals generally? Yeah, happy to do so. So as people are listening, we are still in lockdown. Um, In Australia, you're in another kind of round two, aren't you? Yeah, we're just in, so I'm in Melbourne in Victoria. And so we're the only state that's kind of in a second wave kind of lockdown situation. A lot of the country is sort of more or less going on business as usual, but we're quite strongly locked down here. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, here we're starting to ease up, but the university students are about to come back in a couple of weeks. So I'm, I'm not really sure. Anyway, so the point is, um, 
the very first time I came on your show, I remember you asked about my cats, and I had mm. mentioned that one of my cats, since I'd been in home a lot, and I thought it was because he was anxious because I'm home a lot. Well, it turns out he was actually dying. He was um, terminally ill. Oh, no. We don't know what it was. I had, I had to do multiple tests. The vet did multiple tests, and they basically determined his intestines had stopped working for one reason or another. Uh, so he went downhill really, really fast. He ended up starving to death, even though he still had a really healthy appetite. And it was extremely, extremely traumatic. I mean, for folks who are listening, if you have companion animals in your life, I mean, you can know how, you know how it can be. But mm. we all have that one animal in our life that we just bond with, you know, they bond really bond with. And that was Keely for me. So it was extremely devastating when he died. And it was only really – so it's the summer here, but uh, only towards the end of the summer recently that I've started to feel like, okay, I need to kind of move on. It's not really helping me or him to kind of grieve and grieve and grieve. Mm. Uh, it's time to find – I put my emotions somewhere else. So I said, okay, it's time to adopt. And you know what? This time I want to adopt a dog. And before I couldn't because I rent. And it's always you know two, two pet minimum. You can't have more, uh, especially when you're in a flat. So now that Keely had gone – well, you know what? Now maybe I should get a dog. Uh, but the thing is that it's because of lockdown. Folks here in the UK were just snapping up all these dogs, and there were very few who were there in in my area to adopt. And then also, since moving to the UK, I left my car behind, obviously, and I don't have a car. So it's one of the problems with um, adoption is that they. And anyone who's interested, there's a whole politic of this. And uh, Nathan Winograd, who directs the national – in the U.S., he directs the National No-Kill Advocacy Network. And it is one of the most – like his work has been really life-changing for me. But one of the things that he criticizes is that these shelters, so-called shelters, will be way out in the middle of nowhere to where it's difficult for people to access. Hmm. So that was kind of my situation. It was difficult for me to access these places out in the countryside. Um, there weren't many dogs there to adopt. And I still have one other cat who's living, and the dog needed to be able to be okay with that cat. So I'm part of a vegan community on Facebook for, my, for Canterbury, where I live in the UK. And some people are recommending a Romanian non nonprofit. There's a couple of them, actually. And so I started working with them, but they didn't seem to quite trust me. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're like, well, if the dog comes and the dog doesn't get on with the cat, I'm like, well, that's why you need to let me know that the, the dog is tr- tested around cats and that kind of thing. They did multiple interviews with me. Um, I had to send them documentation on who I was, paperwork, and all that kind of stuff. I had to show them um, full documentation of my house, all this sort of stuff. So for people who are worried about, well, these people are just throwing dogs across the Euro tunnel, these nonprofits actually take it really, really, really seriously to the point where I didn't feel comfortable anymore and I pulled out. Hmm. And, again, this kind of – we're getting a little bit off topic for people, again, who want to learn more about the politics of adoption. Nathan Winograd has also written about this, about the heavy bureaucracy around adoption. Where they make it very, very difficult in a lot of ways, which you can see why it would be good. You want the dog to be taken care of. But on the other hand, at the time, I was the chair of the Animal Society section of the, of the American Sociological Association. I'm an animal rights scholar by trade, and they still didn't even trust me, <laughs> a vegan of 20 years. So anyway, I got, through that vegan Facebook group, I got put in touch with this uh, woman who's working in Bulgaria and she's just a one woman show. And she knew who I was through other connections. And it was kind of like a personal reference sort of thing. And basically what she does is she gets these street dogs and, and cats and every month she fills up a van and ships them over. And she only charges for the, the adoption fee is really only to pay for the uh, shipment over the carrier fee. 
Hmm. And uh, so Mishka, which is Bulgarian for mouse, arrived last week. I uh, thought she was going to be close to a year, but I think she's much younger than that. So it's been, she's finally, right now as we speak, finally laying down on the sofa to take a nap. Um, she has lots and lots of attention, lots of walks, which is good. It's good exercise for me, especially during lockdown to get out. Um, but then the last part of the story is my other cat. When my first cat, Keely, got diagnosed, and he, then he shortly died in, in May, at the same time, actually the day he was euthanized, I had to take in Trudy for um, severe breast cancer. It has it's terminal, and so she's not going to make it much longer. So I'm adopting a, another cat, and the cat is going to be coming through the same woman from Bulgaria next month. So I'm glad you asked this story because I think that for people who – I've had friends who have, have wanted to adopt, and they're like, well, I can't find any dogs that are suitable to my life. And you should. You should make sure that these animals are suitable to the lifestyle you lead. You want to be fair to the animals. Um, but I've had people who have kind of gone to purchasing dogs – because they were finding it too difficult to adopt. And that, that just <laughs> that breaks my heart, you know? Yeah. So I want, just want folks to consider, like, w- what's going on elsewhere outside maybe of your country? Because there are people, there are people, heroes out there doing what this woman is doing to, to get these dogs off the street and to, out of, you know, kill shelters and into loving homes. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and it is. It definitely can be difficult. I've got uh, two staffies myself, and it was very hard to find an apartment with two staffies, but uh, especially like renting. But uh, yeah, so it all depends on your situation. But uh, yeah, definitely where you can is a really, a really important thing to do. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll get on to the main topic. So again, Corey has written the article, How to Help When It Hurts, Think Systemic. And so I wonder if you just want to introduce that sort of dilemma that you had. I've sort of touched on a little bit, but this idea of um, the sort of the, I guess, hypothetical for many of us, but I guess real for some people situation, this sort of moral dilemma about what to feed these animals. Okay, so this this paper that I published with the Animal Studies Journal is actually a response to a paper written by my colleague, Cheryl Labate, who is a philosophy lecturer um, in the U.S., we call them professors, at the um, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And she specializes in animal ethics. And she specifically has an interest in um, cat ethics. She's a big, big cat person. Uh, and she also had, we, were, we, we spent a summer together, because we actually met in grad school at Colorado State University, and back in 2014, we we decided to go back to Colorado for the summer and just kind of like do work and hang out and just you know live, relive the old days. But during that time, she started uh, volunteering at a big cat shelter that was um, out in the Rockies in Colorado. And I think that's what inspired this paper because she, being she's a vegan um, and she is like myself, has dedicated her career to animal rights. And, I mean, this woman's got animal rights tattoos all over her. She's just, like, awesome. But she loves cats a lot. And that's the moral dilemma that you had brought up at the beginning of the show is what do you do with obligate carnivores? Now, I think we can talk a, bit, a little bit more about what does it really mean to be obligate, but let's just assume that that's the case. That's, when we're talking about big cats in particular, um, what, what do we do? So she's basically has this moral dilemma where there's these cats that have been rescued from zoos and circuses and they've had abysmal lives, really horrible lives. And then they're thankfully make it to this rescue. And she's arguing that we have a moral duty to provide for these animals that have not, that have only known suffering their entire lives. But the problem is that we are feeding them like this particular shelter that she, or rescue she was working for 
was getting their meat from like local sourced, um, I think like butchers or like it was like local meat production or whatever. And they just like gave them, I don't even know if they paid for it, but they were giving them this meat and she just, it made her uncomfortable. She was there when the animals were being fed. There's big chunks of flesh and corpse being thrown over the fence and that kind of stuff. And she's like, geez. So the argument was like, we're supporting slaughterhouses to the rescue of these cats. That's not fair. But these cats deserve to be relieved of suffering and to get a chance at life that they didn't have before. Like, this is their one chance to really enjoy their life. Mm. So and she argues sorry, in the paper. Sorry, to interrupt um, just for a moment, when we're talking about cats, we're talking about, like, big lions, cats, cats. tigers. Yes, the, yes, yeah, 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 Just to make it clear, just not, like, big yeah. tabby cats or whatever. Yep, yep. Yeah. But yeah. well, you can also apply this to, I mean, depending on where you live, because what her solution was was to hire someone to go out and hunt. I use that word in quotation marks because I don't think that's an appropriate word for what it is uh but hunt the hunt deer so we're talking like in the united states we have white-tailed deer and then in in colorado there's mule deer so there's two different species of deer so she's arguing that the sanctuary should hire someone to go out and shoot deer to feed the the animals that are rescued at this at this big cat shelter now i she published that paper and uh I read that, you know, so I'm just like full disclosure. Cheryl is one of my best, 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 dearest friends. We're very close friends. <laughs> so I read this. She's like, Look, check out my new paper. And I read it. I was like, no, no, <laughs> no, Cheryl, no. So I wrote, I, I remember. So that was her in Colorado. Then, gosh, what, two years later, I was on a writing sabbatical in northern Maine out in the woods. And uh, which actually the Humane Society of the United States offers that to animal rights scholars, which is really sweet. So anyway, I distinctly remember sitting in that cabin, just <laughs> writing my response, which turned out to be one of the longest papers I've ever written. And I had to cut back quite a bit because uh, Nick, the problem that I saw with it, and you as a sociologist, you can, we can talk about this some more, but basically this, this notion of supply and demand is really, really problematic, and it's a very popular theme in vegan advocacy, animal rights, is that if you support it with your dollar, then it will, you know, that will support the system. But that's not how the system works. The system is not so simplistic of I buy it and they make more of it, I buy less of it, they make less of it. Hmm. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I've got a, I've got a lot to say about it. I think we might, um, yeah, we might go to a track though, and then we'll get into more of that. But I did want to say just as a starting point, like reading your article, it like starts off like a fairly like a niche example, right? Like most of us don't have a big cat sanctuary, um, mm-hmm. but actually the ideas that you bring up and you touched on it there, I think, are really relevant to the animal movement and vegan activists, etc. And I think that um, critique of that supply and demand model, which, as you mentioned, is so prevalent in the vegan movement, is really important for animal activists to think about. So, uh, yeah, we'll get into that more. But I wanted to start off with, uh, rather than the song, we're going to play a couple of clips in this show. So the first one is from the the vet. Andrew Knight who um, he writes a lot about vegan dogs and cats and yeah he talks about this example of this vegetarian lion and I'm certainly not uh, I don't have the knowledge or the expertise to at all argue that this is the solution to the problem by any means but I more just thought it was kind of a relevant example just quite an interesting example that this this lion actually managed to thrive on a vegetarian diet. Absolutely little tyke was uh, the most famous vegetarian cat in history. She wasn't quite a cat. She was actually an African lioness that was raised on a sanctuary in California in the 1950s uh, by a couple, Georges and Margaret Westbo. And she was raised with a lamb, a deer and a swan, uh, all of who became her firm friends. And she was raised from 
um, kittenhood or lionesshood up to adulthood. The Westbos received advice from their veterinarians that uh, they had to feed little tyke meat, um, otherwise she would become severely ill. And they tried, but because she'd been raised to view these other animals around her as her friends and she'd never been taught to hunt with a lion pack, she had no idea how, you know, how to hunt and that animal products were naturally consumed and she in fact resisted all attempts to feed her meat. Uh, her carers were so concerned about the veterinarian claims that she would become severely ill if she didn't eat meat that they posted a thousand US dollar reward for anyone who could entice little tyke to eat some meat. So many tried to claim this prize, which back in the 1950s was worth quite a lot of money. But um, no one was ever uh, successful in claiming that reward. Uh, she uh, was reported to refuse milk with a, even a tiny amount of blood mixed into it. She was so... Um, opposed to consuming any, any meat or animal, well, any meat or blood anyway. So in order to safeguard her health, they would feed her a double handful of uh, cooked grains chosen for their protein, uh, roughage, fat, calcium, along with half a gallon of milk, along with uh, two uh, eggs. And to safeguard the health of her teeth, they would feed, well, give her to play with a gumboot with her favourite perfume sprinkled onto it, and uh, she loved this perfume and one gumboot would last her just about a month so that kept her teeth nice and healthy and clean. Uh, by the age of four, uh, she was 10 feet 4 inches long, which is 3.1 metres. She was 159 kilograms, 352 pounds. She could run at 40 miles an hour, which is 64 kilometres an hour. One of America's most experienced zoo curators said that she was the healthiest African lioness he had ever seen. So at this point, uh, her guardians stopped worrying about what their veterinarians were telling them and uh, she went on to become a healthy, happy, successful television star and she was later filmed uh, playing with day-old chicks, uh, kittens and the producer's uh, daughter on TV shows, so on one of the TV shows. So there you go, the most famous example of a vegetarian cat and there have actually been others too. If you search the literature, there are other reports, at least one other report that I found of an African lioness who refused to eat meat and who was vegetarian, also healthy. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellway supports 3CR. Welcome back to Freedom of Species. We're joined by sociologist Corey Wren, and we're talking about 
I guess the dilemma of feeding uh, big cats, lions, tigers, etc., what to feed them once they're rescued, and also bring that to broader questions that are very relevant to animal activists today. So before, um, yeah, in the break, we heard a song, uh, heard, not a song, an interview uh, with Andrew Knight, who's a vet who writes about vegan dogs and cats and gave the example of uh, Tyke the lion or lioness who, who um, ate a vegetarian diet. Um, and I believe, Corey, you've looked into Tyke's story. I did. So... Um... Congratulations to my librarians at the time at Monmouth University who tracked that book down. It's a very old book, um, but it was basically these folks who had a I don't even I don't know if you could call it a sanctuary. I think it was just people who owned big cats and mm-hmm. had a menagerie, but they had little Tyke, which was a little lioness, a cub, a female cub, and basically she had been raised by humans, and so she did not she had not been socialized to um, hunt and like be attracted to the smell and taste of rotting flesh, which is basically, you know, it's what lions in the wild do. So they could not, and they had really, they were worried about her health. So they had tried everything to get people like come in and help train her. And they just could not get, get her to do it. The best they could do is they did get her animal protein in her through, I think she drank milk or something like that, but mm-hmm. she was a vegetarian basically her whole life. And she lived for some time and she ended up, I think, I think what actually ended up killing her, which is really sad, was um, they were using her for um, publicity stunts and in the movies and things like that. And the transport of taking her around to these different um, gigs ended up killing her. So, yeah, it wasn't not necessarily an animal rights story, but the point was that, yeah, she was a vegetarian. And it's because she had not been raised by other lions and she was not socialized to kind of savor rotting flesh. Mm, yeah and i think something that wasn't actually featured in that video we played but i was watching another video on it and i think also another thing which i can't remember the exact story because a long time ago i was looking into this but it was something like her her brothers and sisters maybe were killed at a young age and and i think that the the like um certainly my partner raised that, that it was like it was possibly like a response to trauma of associating that blood. And I think we often don't make those connections with, you know, non-human animals, with other animals, yet seeing that impact of trauma, which obviously impacts humans, but other animals as well. So that is another interesting angle to the story. Okay. I believe, Mm. I believe that could be it as well. Mm. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, before that, we were talking, or we just got onto this idea of the supply and demand model. And I think this is, uh, yeah, so dominant in the animal movement. And we hear things like, you know, by being a vegan, you save 100 animals a year and, and those kind of figures, which I think it might be useful to think about this idea of like, um, yeah, like that we can have some kind of influence on these things as individuals, but I always kind of question the, uh, yeah, question these sort of where they get those figures from and maybe it's not the whole story as well. So, um, yeah, uh, again, and I think your article is very relevant to a lot of animal advocacy. So do you want to just elaborate a bit on this supply and demand model about, um, yeah, I guess that as individuals, we're not the only ones who contribute to animals animals and animal parts being, you know, sold and bought in supermarkets, for example. Yeah, sure. So uh, just to clarify that this paper we're talking about is my paper, How to Help It When It Hurts. And then the paper I'm responding to is Cheryl Abate's How to Help When It Hurts, The Problem of Assisting Victims of Injustice. So both of them have the same title, but we take two different solutions 
And she's using that premise of, you know, buy less of it and it will support less of it. So let's hunt deer instead, which is a whole other like, ethical conundrum I, would, I, I could unpack. But my response was basically it's the paper is premised incorrectly because that's not how the economy works. So this is this is this is a big difference between me, me and Cheryl. Cheryl's a philosopher and I'm a sociologist and sociologists tend to have um, really deep critiques of the capitalist system, elites, uh, the role of the state. And so when we're talking about what's available for us to purchase, we have to think about uh, non-human animal products. This is something that used to be quite rare. Um, I can't speak to Australia, but I can speak to uh, other countries in the West that until industrialization around um, the era of World War II, the mid-20th century, eating animal products was expensive and not everybody could do it. And it, we're talking about, say, the, the New Deal with Roosevelt in the 1930s after the Great Depression. He promised Americans... We'll have a chicken in every pot once a, once a week. Once a week? <laughs> well, now fast forward. People, Americans are eating chicken for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, for snacks, right? It's chicken all day long. And why is that? Is it because all of a sudden Americans just decided we love chicken? Oh, and the same thing with bacon. Why did bacon take off all of a sudden? Bacon used to be a waste meat. Now, in both cases, these are products that have been pushed on people through heavy advertising and, more importantly, through state support through subsidies, through the lobbying from industries. So they're really powerful players up at the top who are determining what foods are available to us and what foods are foods are desirable to us. And the reason, by the way, that um, chicken took off so much is because chickens are small. They're fast to raise or to grow. I hate to even use the word grow and raise. It makes them seem like objects or plants. Uh, but it's, it's really easy to kind of create chickens and process them quickly. And that is why chicken consumption has is really exploded. So we have to look at this notion of supply and demand with a really critical eye because it, and sadly, the unfortunate part is that consumers do not really have that much um, power in the situation. The people who are deciding what we eat are really those who control, have like controlled government, who have um, important spaces and stakes in the state. And we, if you, you can, I mean, this is, this is no secret. This has actually been really well researched by, um, John Robbins, who wrote the a Diet for New America. So this is one of the most groundbreaking books for the animal rights movement back in the 80s. But then we also have folks like David Nybert, who's a sociologist who's looked into um, the role of the state and industries in subsidizing and normalizing and really forcing these foods on us. And we also have to consider people who are living in lower socioeconomic conditions. They don't really have that opportunity to say, well, I, I want to go over here and buy – healthy food from this store versus over here where there's nothing like that available. Um, so we have to be thinking about who, well, even those people who are making choices, who has the luxury of making that choice? Middle-class people? Or we want to address what's happening at the systemic level at the, at the top. And there's an, and the last point on this before you, I want to hear what you have to think, Nick, but mm -hmm. there's an organization called the vegan justice league. And this to my knowledge is really the only, I don't know if they're a nonprofit, but they're American. They're an American group. But they're really the only group that I know of that rejects this very simplistic, buy more vegan stuff, there'll be more vegan stuff, buy less um, non-vegan stuff, and more animals will be saved. They reject that because they're aware of what's happening at the at the governmental level, these subsidies and these laws and lobbyings. So we need to be looking more systemic is the argument in this paper. Yeah, yeah, and I totally agree with that. Obviously, as sociologists as well, we often look at these uh, structural issues, not just individual, uh, whereas the 
it seems in the animal movement, we put a lot of effort into individual change and also, I guess, individual blame for harm to animals as well, uh, sort of overlooking the fact that, as you mentioned, that some individuals have greater capacity to have greater choice over the foods and products they they choose more than others. And also, I think this uh, idea of putting the blame purely on the individual, it, it kind of overlooks the other players who also contribute harm to animals, like governments, as you mentioned, um, like um, corporations as well, and the industries that use animals. We can kind of often sort of, in a way, let them off the hook or not, not explore those issues because we're so focused on just individuals choosing the right thing which I think is very much based on sort of a, a neoliberal sort of free market economics that the, the, right. system, the system itself is not wrong and governments aren't doing anything wrong. The, the system is perfect. We're just choosing the wrong products within that system. And if we chose the right products, the system would be correct and there would be no harm, which I think is, is something that sort of works in an economics textbook or a neoliberal economic textbooks, but not necessarily in, in the real world where, where governments and corporations as you said sort of force these uh products on us to an extent and i think it was uh karl marx said something like um production creates consumption and so it's like it's we don't we don't we don't consume these products in a vacuum there's these bigger structural forces at play which you bring up in the article yeah let me give some examples of that so um i have a book that's coming out next year on animal rights and food studies in ireland and Ireland is a good case study, I think, because it is, it's, um, it's very agricultural. That's one of their major exports is uh, animal products, beef and um, dairy products. So two examples from Ireland. One example is in the 1980s, and this is like the height of neoliberalism, right? Oh, open your markets and the wealth will come. Well, that's not what happened. Milk consumption really was kind of stagnating. And... Um, so what happened was the, the Irish dairy industry, to this day the Irish dairy industry really struggles, but it was really struggling, and they weren't really sure how to proceed. Now, you have to think about dairy production is extremely expensive. We're talking about you have to have lots and lots of live animals, raise them up to a certain age. You have to deal with babies, constant flow of babies. You have to deal with feeding these animals, keeping them healthy, veterinary care to keep them alive in these abysmal conditions. And then you have fresh product that spoils quickly. So you have to have refrigeration units and all this kind of processing stuff and then ship it to where it needs to go. It's an extremely expensive enterprise. So if that, if that dairy production does not have some kind of state support and safety net, it's just not viable. It's absolutely just not viable. So in the 1980s in Ireland, they were really experiencing some difficulties in keeping it profitable, even with state support. So what they did was, as you mentioned, like they just create – create new consumptions for that product. And so what they did, what this revitalized the Irish dairy industry, and I'm sure it's the same in other dairy industries, but they basically came up with lots of new products to make from the waste, like with the whey, which was more shelf-stable. So you had like energy drinks and all this type of stuff. And that revitalized the Irish dairy industry. Now they can continue chugging along, making a lot of profit. Um, but then you still you run out of markets at some point, and you're going to saturate your consumer base. So as I mentioned earlier, one of the ways to get over that is to simply tell people you need to eat more. It's healthy for you. You must eat meat and dairy in every single meal, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one way. And the state facilitates that. The state creates these nutritional guidelines, and people believe them. So you can increase your consumption among your main consumer base, and that's a way to increase it. But you can also start looking for new markets, 
And so I think a lot of folks are not aware of is that in the West, and especially in Ireland, that is a uniquely lactose tolerant population. So we're talking about people in like Northern Europe. So elsewhere in the world, people have not relied on animal milk beyond infancy. And it's just not a normal thing. I mean, some people can, but we're talking about in Asian countries, most people can't digest lactose beyond weaning, which is makes sense, right? Mm. But anyway, regardless of that, the Irish dairy industry, and I know New Zealand is also doing this, another big agricultural state, they start to create new markets in places where there were no demand for these products to begin with. And um, there is a friend of mine who has published a paper on this. Actually, I don't know if he's published a paper, but he's done stuff on soy and the politics of soy in Asia. Um, Tobias Lene? Tobias Lene? He's um, Swedish, I think. Uh, He's a buddy of mine. I always mix up his last name with it. Tobias Leonard. There's two Tobiases. Anyway, he does this work on the politics of soy consumption in China, and it's, it's astounding colonial history there where you have a population of people who can't digest lactose, and yet they're starting to purchase milk from the West, and then, of course, starting their own um, dairy industries in order to mimic Western consumption out of this kind of past uh, colonial humiliation where the people – I mean, this is what colonial politics were built on consumption, the beef eaters of Britain and the dairy consumers, and they said how people get strong and defeated their – Uh, these weaker colonial spaces. I mean, this is like this legacy that remains. Mm. So now you see Western companies kind of uh, taking advantage of this colonial history and this colonial hurt and pushing in products. So now if you can tap into India, the dairy industry exploded there after independence. Um, So you can tap into these colonial spaces and start pumping in all these animal products. You're creating new markets. Again, is this, this is is this just so simplistic as a person living in Beijing is like, ah, I'm going to choose not to buy milk today and that'll teach them. Like, no, this is a system wide legacy of colonialism situation that's bigger than that individual purchase. Mm. And the second example I wanted to give about Ireland today, and this is something that the Vegan Justice League echoes and they post memes on Facebook all the time that I think are just so cutting. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> Let's say uh, in Ireland right now they're really ravaged by um, the Brexit vote because they rely a lot on most of the agricultural trade that Ireland does is with Britain because that's that colonial legacy as well. So Brexit has really rocked them. People are wondering um, where should we buy our beef? Should we just buy beef locally? Because that's part of Brexit, isn't it? We don't want to support outsiders. It's kind of xenophobic stuff. So then what, where does that leave Ireland? And then Ireland is also seeing a, a, um, a growth in vegan consumption, animal rights there, Um and people kind of stereotype Ireland as being backwards in that way. But in fact, it's not. It's quite modern as far as um, animal rights and veganism. So the, the long story short is the beef industry is really suffering. And they're also big time in trouble with the European Union because they rely so much on beef and dairy production that their greenhouse gas emissions are through the roof. And they're beyond limits and regulations. So they're facing fines. So you had the Taoiseach. Um, he's not the Taoiseach anymore, but he was the past Taoiseach. He actually said, you know, I personally cut down on my meat, and I'm personally concerned about climate change. Personally, he made sure. He wasn't talking about Ireland and this is, Ireland should go veggie or anything like that. But those p- remarks about his personal beliefs, which are pretty lukewarm, cut down on your meat, climate change is a problem, sparked huge protests from the far- farmers in Ireland. They, they drove up into Dublin in their tractors. And demanded, like, this This Taoiseach thinks he's a vegan now. And what about Ireland? What about Ireland? And so what do they do? The government caves and creates this beef task force and is now um, making sure that the beef industry will be saved. It's going to remain profitable. They're subsidizing it. In this time, 
when we know that the, the climate change is at a crisis level and the science is smacking them in the face, the government is still because of the power of the farmers and because of the power of agriculture in the history of that country. So, again, that, that's a long story um, of coming around to say that this is more than individual um, decision making in the grocery store. Hmm. Yep, yep, absolutely. And yeah, I think also, I guess, as a bit of disclaimer, I think that obviously me and Corey are both vegan and we do value individual change. And I think sociology does highlight these structures, but also that we have, do have some some role in these structures. Again, I don't think it's as clear if someone goes vegan and 100 animals are automatically saved. But I guess the idea that we are both uh, influenced by these structures and also have some control over some limited control. And so I think it is worth avoiding these products on an individual level for those who can. Uh, But having said that, I think that we should view individual change as just one tool in our toolkit as animal activists. And we should also consider these structural issues, which aren't often focused on. And also even when we are advocating for individual change, I think we can also learn a lot from other movements like the environmental movement, actually look at, the the harm of the bigger picture of of governments of companies etc and so i'm going to play another quick video and then we're going to finish up with some yeah hopefully some more concrete example of how animal activists can incorporate some of these ideas into their activism and and vegan activism etc and so this basically relates very directly to a point from Corey's article. So a quote from the article is, meat and dairy production is artificially high and is forced into the food system regardless of consumer desires. And I've got a video from the show Adam Ruins Everything, which is called Ever Wonder Why Cheese is Everywhere. And this is in the United States. And what you'll find out in this video is that it actually has very little to do with consumers or individuals in the US actually wanting cheese, but it has a lot to do with as Corey's touched on of governments and corporation basically forcing cheese upon the US population. Ever wonder why Americans eat so much cheese? It's everywhere. Tacos, burgers, even inside our pizza crust. Well, it all started during the Great Depression. The dairy industry was on the brink of collapse. Without my cheese, I got nothing to live for. So the government decided to bail them out. Uncle Sam will protect you. I'll buy your dang cheese. (laughs) For decades to come, America used tax dollars to buy up a whole bunch of cheese and save Big Cow. The United States bought so much excess dairy, they needed somewhere to store it. So they made a uh, somewhat questionable choice. We'll put it in a cave! That's right. The government found some caves in Missouri and packed them full of cheese and butter. By 1983, these literal cheese caves held over $4 billion worth of dairy products, and they still exist to this day. The government had so much excess cheese, they gave it away to those in need, also known as government cheese. And to this day, the government still provides money to fast food companies to help them market cheese-heavy products. Hey, they got a lot of cheese to unload. And folks, 
That's why America is wild about cheese. Woo-wee! I'm glad I could tolerate lactose. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Welcome back to Freedom of Species. We're joined by Corey Wren. And yeah, we started off talking about what to feed uh, carnivorous animals who are rescued. And we've got on to some much broader questions to do with animal activists and and incorporating broader, more structural issues into activism, looking at uh, governments and corporations and their role in harm to animals, not just individuals. And yeah, also, even when we are talking about individual veganism, we can sometimes sort of reframe that to account for these broader structural factors, factors or, or yeah, reframe vegan, veganism in a, in a different way to account for some of these issues that Corey has raised. And, and that is something which you touched on in your article. So do you want to talk a bit about, um, yeah, I guess how, how you see veganism in maybe a, viewing it in beyond a supply and demand kind of model? And I just wanted to add in a quick note to listeners that this final section does include some brief mentions of sexual assault. Sure. So I think that with social movements, kind of the one of the more disappointing things about the role of social movements in society and social change is that social movements don't often really create. Um, we do we create change. But we don't necessarily create that large scale systemic change very often, which is kind of discouraging. But the main thing that social movements are, are really good for is raising awareness and um, changing culture. So influencing culture, raising awareness to issues. And from there, we can maybe advocate for the, the, the structural change that needs to take place. And that's usually going to happen through um, through lobbying, through voting, through, um, in the U.S., le- legislative challenges in the, ju- in the judicial system. Those are the places where structural change happens. And this kind of gets back to the core Karl Marx stuff where he argued that everything emerges from our economy. So our economy forms the base of our society. And then the superstructure would be our laws, our values, our the police and the state and all those sorts of things that really emerge as institutions to kind of facilitate the economy. So we ultimately what we need to do is dig at that base. But that's something that's much more difficult to do. And this is why you see a lot of social movements, they towards, go towards that kind of socialist, anti-capitalist sort of um, leaning. And the reason why is because those activists are recognizing that if we don't change our economic structure, we can't change our social relations. But obviously that's a big task, and that can't be done in our lifetime, and it can't be done by just being a vegan. But it's something we need to keep in the back of our minds. And I think, to be fair, I would have to say that Cheryl has recently – I think just about a month or two ago, published a a third article. So there's her article, her original article, my response to it, and then she's published an article in response to my response. And then she comes back and says, okay, we need to act individually, so hence we should be vegan, but we also need to work in groups, so hence we should um, advocate for more structural change. There are – there's also issues that I have in, in the animal rights movement that a lot of times the structural change is taking place through nonprofits. And when they're advocating for structural change, it tends to be really watered down, 
um, let's make cages a little bit bigger. Uh, let's have more vegetarian op- uh, options in, in school rooms and things like that. Well, that's important, but is that going to create structural change or is it just kind of gonna am- like make it a little bit better so the system can per- perpetuate? So one of the things I, I uh, tell my students is that, you know, capitalism inherently is full of crisis. And in some ways, sadly, nonprofits as a form of social services also as a way of giving uh, a place for a- activists to kind of like yell into the void. <laughs> it helps the system to run smoothly because it kind of it, it shuts up the cr- those who have the critique, but it also provides social services so it keeps the system going when it would otherwise collapse. So capitalism is a really, really tricky system to try and negotiate. Veganism alone is not going to do it, but as Nick said, we are vegans, and we do recognize there's a political protest involved with that. And one example I could give, and then, Nick, I can let you give your two cents on this, but I'm also a feminist, and we live in a rape culture where rape is normal. Rape is normal. Most women are going to experience uh, directly or indirectly, or if not, then they will have the constant threat that they live with. We live in a rape culture does that mean that well we can't um stop rape individually so we just go around raping as we want no we still have an ethical obligation not to participate in a system that is problematic and we also speak to our friends this is especially important for men but also for women who might victim blame we as individuals have to stand as a person who in protest to that and speak against the wrongs that we are witnessing so we do play a role as a a social movement in raising awareness and, and shaping culture but we have to address that structural stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so I think there is, and as I touched on before, like I don't think we should necessarily neglect individual change. I think it does play a role, but often we use that one tool when, as you, you mentioned, all these other tools that we might have to make change for animals. And I also wanted to just give one example of even when we are advocating for individual veganism, a way we can uh, incorporate this into our activism, these these the, the fact that it isn't just individuals causing harm in a vacuum when it comes to animals. Um, and this was actually, so I spoke about this at the Vegan Sociology Conference and I planned to speak about it at the Animal Activist Forum back in 2019. Unfortunately, I was unwell and couldn't give the talk. So I'm going to give some, some ideas I wanted to give there and hopefully reach some activists this way. But yeah, just to give one example, this was an anti-dairy protest I was a part of and I think it was, it was quite a good protest. It was talking about dairy but as a sort of starting point to talk about veganism and animal exploitation more generally um, and I also thought it was quite an accessible action in terms of basically people could just hold placard they had a few people handing out flyers they had vegan alternatives to dairy and that kind of stuff as well just in the in the main one main street in Melbourne uh, but I just thought some of the messaging basically frames both the problem of animal exploitation as an individual and also the solution as an individual we avoid the structures so some of the messaging included um, pictures of a cow and then he died for your yogurt um, and if we're talking about um, bobby calves in the dairy industry who are killed because they're not profitable or he was killed because you wanted cheese and so this framing while maybe there is some truth to it is very much individual focus so all the blame is on the individuals and also all the solution is on individuals in contrast i look at other social movements where the sometimes they advocate for individual change but the problem is always framed as companies or government so for the from the fossil fuel movements is 
your bank investing in dirty fossil fuels. So there's an individual, they want the individuals to do something, but it's your bank that is a problem. Um, or even if we look at um, the BDS movement around Israel, um, again, it is an individual change, an individual economic boycott of Israel. But the problem, again, is a government there, is Israel. And so I, I think about how we could maybe frame it in a similar way where the problem is companies and governments and the solution is still individual change. So I thought of something more like the dairy industry kills cows, boycott this slaughter industry. So it's, it's still, it's an individual messaging. We're wanting individual change, but we're not so much blaming individuals. We're actually blaming the industry. We're looking at the bigger picture. Uh, and I think thought that was just one way we could incorporate this even when we are doing vegan outreach. Uh, what did you think of that, Corey? I think that's wonderful what you're saying we should pull from the environmental movement because environmental yeah. movement also has had its issues with individualizing stuff like you don't turn your lights off when you leave mm-hmm. the room. But unlike other social movements, they really can't turn away from that that superstructure that needs to be changed and then the base structure of the capitalist system needs to be challenged. So, yeah, we can learn a lot from that. But I also think that maybe there's a social psychology to this as well. When people are feeling all the blame is on them, do you think that they're going to be more likely to want to change or they're going to feel defensive? Mm. And there's actually a study that just came out, speaking of the environmental movement. It was published in Environmental Politics, I think, last month. And the people in the study had um, researched status, social status um, and social class, and then your sense of self-efficacy. And what they found is that wealthier, high-status people had a stronger sense of efficacy, like I can make a change, I'm going to make changes, and they actually do changes. And then people with lower status, low income, they tended to feel, I don't have, I'm powerless and I'm helpless in this situation. I don't feel like I could be effective. So we have to be also mindful of our audience and, and what is their social position and are they going to be receptive to the particular campaigns? If you make it more structural level, that tends to be more inclusive. Mm. Yeah, that's really important. And I, I've just thinking of broader discussions going on in the left at the moment in, in cancel culture and those kind of things. And one thing I have heard is that like shame is not a good place to make change from. And so, yeah, this sort of shaming of individuals for consuming animal products, I'm not sure if that puts people in a in a, a, the right frame of mind to make change, but maybe if it's more like, yeah, this industry is doing this bad thing. They're the one doing the bad thing, but you can actually be a part of the solution. So again, that sort of reframing, even though we're still asking people to do this, do the same thing of not consuming dairy or animal products in general and just to give some final examples very briefly there was the dominion animal liberation disruption um going back a while ago in melbourne where they shut down the the city they sort of blocked things as a protest against animal exploitation but also there was activists who shut down um slaughterhouses and farms as well so i thought that was an interesting action in terms of targeting production rather than consumption we which we often don't do in the movement Uh, another example is um the rancher advocacy program which actually it worked with farmers to switch over to plant-based products so again targeting the production end rather than consumption and the final example i had is from the animal justice party here in australia and they have spoken about putting a tax on animal products uh, for environmental health and animal reasons which is another another sort of effort to again look at the production side of things rather than just individual change so there there are a few examples i had as well of of yeah that we can sort of complement the individual change with that broader structural change as well we've just got a few minutes to go so did you have any final thoughts on yeah anything you didn't get to that you wanted to get to or yeah plugs for yourself or anything like that i do want to say one final thing about because you mentioned there's 
um, sometimes they'll do protests at the animal factories. Mm-hmm. And I know, like, Toronto Pig Save does a lot of that, where they do the vigils. Um, and then here in the U.K., I live near Ramsgate, and that they do a lot of live, pro- live export protests there as well. Um, but we do need to be careful because there's also issues with inequality, obviously, in those systems. So the animal agricultural system is only profitable. I mean, it's profitable for a lot of reasons that are unfair, and one of those is through the exploitation of immigrant and extremely poor and otherwise marginalized people, uh, disabled people oftentimes. So these are folks who are really, really, really vulnerable. Why else would they want to work in such a gruesome place? And I know the animal rights movement um, sometimes sort of gets it right by targeting the system and the the industries, but then doesn't get it right when they start pointing fingers at the individuals like, Oh, we have footage of this worker kicking a cow. Let's we'll have them arrested. We'll have them fined. And yes, that, that person kicking the cow is absolutely unacceptable. But on the other hand, I have to think about what kind of system we're working in where that type of thing happens a lot, predictably so. So mm-hmm. something is creating and in, in, in that type of um, tension, aggression. Um, what are these humans dealing with themselves that they have to to, to take it out on other animals, right? That's not normal behavior that people do just out in the street, start kicking and punching. So we have to be th- be careful then about kind of pointing th- fingers at individuals in these systems and realize that the system is also eating up humans as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know about in Australia, but in the United States, the slaughterhouse industry is one of, it's like number one or number two. I think the number one is like crab fishing or something like that. Also species, it's obviously, but both of them are extremely dangerous, high turnover rate, high injury rate, high fatality rate. And these, again, are people who are oftentimes immigrant, don't speak English, maybe living with disabilities, are extremely poor, so on and so forth. So we need to be thinking about when we're thinking structurally, not pointing fingers at individuals as cogs in that machine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, yeah, I think whether we're talking about individual change or targeting consumption or production, um, yeah, we need to think critically about actions, think about how they intersect with other in- issues like class, race, immigrant status, etc. Um, so, yeah, certainly shouldn't look at these things uncritically, but I just thought it was an interesting example of actually, yeah, sort of actually considering that production side of things, not not just consumption as well. Um, all right, so let me just quickly chat how we're going for time. But, yeah, about time to wrap up. Um, did you have any any websites or anything? I will link to your article in the show notes, obviously. Uh, anything else? I'll, actually, I'll, I'll put my own um, talk I, I recently gave at the Vegan Sociology Conference. I put the audio of that online, which I covered similar points what we've covered here, but different points as well. So have listened to that if you're interested. But anything, um, yeah, anything else you'd like listeners to check out, Corey? No, I guess you can, uh, if you're interested in more sociology of social change and, and veganism, you can check out my website at com. And I have a newsletter for, if you get overwhelmed by all the stuff on the page, sign up for my newsletter because uh, about once every three, four months, I'll send out a recap of ongoing research. Great. Yeah, cool. Thanks for that. And uh, thanks so much for coming back on the show. It's been great to get your perspective. And, and like I said, I think that this, this your, your article uh, is definitely, I think animal activists could really learn a lot from those ideas of bringing in that systemic approach. Well, I'm glad that you picked that article up because I was I was writing it specifically in response to Cheryl, and I was like, "Geez, no one's ever going to read this." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like I said, it, it on the surface of it, it kind of seems very like 
you know, obscure or philosophical or, yeah, very relevant for a very small number of people. But again, I think it does have very that sort of the critique of the supply and the demand which you draw on is actually very relevant to all animal act- activists, I think. Cool beans. Thanks for covering it. So, yeah, if you did want to in the future speak with Cheryl about her philosophical perspective, I mm-hmm. think you could have a really interesting back and forth. Yep, yep, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And yeah, stay tuned for Encyclopedia. That's up next. Always interesting discussions around drug and drug use and drug policy issues. You can check out all of our show at three, all of our shows. Sorry, at three cr.org.au forward slash freedom of species and on iTunes. Uh, feedback. Got any feedback? We always like hearing from listeners. Info at freedom of species as well as on Facebook or Twitter at at FOS Radio. We're going to finish up with the song Civil War by Soul. And I, I just thought this was quite a sociological song. One of the lyrics is, self-styled is not an option. Am I a product of my environment or is my environment a product of me? Which I thought was a very sociological question to ask. So we'll finish up with that one. Uh, thanks again, Corey. Not a problem. So happy to be here. Billions of damaged souls may out the world. Where is the world if you've been kicked? Must you keep on kicking? Self-styled is not an option. My product of my environment was my environment a product of me. I want to feel like an artist in the 18th century. White people, when we can find a happy place between guilt and privilege, there is no other, no neighbor, only terrified us. Out of my signs of grief, a million paper cuts, dollars being wheelbarrowed overseas. I am a thief. Everything I stole should have been given, but the sad dreams we cling. What sad beams we Come and write a love you to my girl via text She sits next to me on the couch I want to sweep her away But there's nowhere on this planet we can run It's war here Depends on what you call warfare We focus on class But the war is on us I want to find a new way We can talk about race Know whether or not it exists But how will we perceive shapes this place How many conversations been killed by violence Self-hatred is energy wasted and still violence Pause here if you want it You can stick your head in the sand You can't run from it Act like you want it Then you gotta own it Pause here if you want it You can stick your head in the sand And you can't run from it Act like you want it Then you gotta own it These wars are daily Workers screaming, fuck you, pay me Bosses Skype from their island properties, finger-waving People waiting restlessly in post office lines Cross-armed, hang it tight to theirs like mine is mine Peace sign, bumper sticker on a minivan Not knowing what people die for in Afghanistan We can blame a faceless demon, robots, or computing But behind illusions, it's just humans hurting humans Read marks of a tuning till our eyes bleed In the end, it's what we make of all of those theories Rosa screaming he don't want no civil war Though the battlefield is exactly where he was born Hegemony made us all competitive since seeds Every man just counting how much he can fucking eat Put a bullet in a body fast Before the bullet ricochets back Programmed to attack as if someone always wants to take our things Our battles keep the ruling class laughing Every difference was created The power sealed the flame to keep us blinded and complacent Enslavement with engendered class and races A boss in heaven says what to believe While bosses on earth keep us still working Hope for heaven after labor When corporations build a better paradise One day we'll worship logos as our saviors 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.